Hello and welcome to Empire Sports Talk. I am your host, Roman Gennaro, and it is so good to be back. I hope everybody had a great holiday. Uh, we've been off for a little over a month. We had some technical issues with our computer, had to send that off to get fixed. So we use that as an opportunity to take a little bit of a hiatus during the holidays. It's good to be back. The set looks pretty much the same, but here pretty soon we're going to add something special right here behind me to go along with Michael Jordan and the King Griffey Jr. jersey. I received a special gift for Christmas that I was not expecting that relates to this podcast, and so I just got word that that will be ready in two weeks, so we will unveil a special addition to the set in two weeks, but I'm going to keep secret what it is until it's here with us for all of us to see. As I said, it's been a while. We've been off the air for about a month, so... I want to start off by covering some things that happened in the meantime to get us caught up to where we are now. Uh, I want to start with my thoughts on the college football playoff and the four teams that are included. Those four teams being Michigan, Michigan, Washington, Texas, and and Alabama. Obviously, the big controversy there is that Florida State finished the regular season undefeated won the ACC championship, and was left out, whereas a one-loss Alabama team got in. There there were those who believed that because Alabama beat Georgia and they're in the SEC, they should automatically get in. There are those who believe that Florida State being undefeated, regardless of their quarterback situation, should have gotten in. And I understand both. I, I just as a personal thing in my life, try to see both sides. Um and and think what the best thing is and for me i tend to side with the with the way that it was and i don't just want to be like oh alabama is the sec because it is the sec they need to have somebody in period i don't think that's the, i do think the sec is the strongest conference but i feel like for somebody to be included into the college football playoff they should earn it and yes Alabama lost to Texas in week two, but there's a saying in college football, if you're going to lose, lose early, and that is what Alabama did, and anybody that was watching as an unbiased observer would see that the the team and the quarterback that played in week two against Texas was a very different team and a very different quarterback, a more confident quarterback in the SEC championship against Georgia. And they didn't just beat Georgia, but if I remember correctly, Georgia scored first in that game. And from that point on, it was all Alabama. So Alabama beat Georgia convincingly. The team that's dominated college football for the past three years, Alabama beat them convincingly. Add on to that, the fact that Yes, Florida State lost Jordan Travis. He was arguably the Heisman favorite before his injury. And taking it to the NFL for a second, when you or or professional sports in general, I often talk on this podcast about how we don't evaluate the V in MVP the way we should. And I heard something on ESPN this week where they were talking about who's who's the MVP and who should be in the race. And it was a conversation between 
Brock Purdy and Lamar Jackson. And they said if you remove Brock Purdy and put in, say, Sam Darnold, because of the weapons that San Francisco has around the quarterback, and this is not a dig at Brock Purdy. I think Brock Purdy is a great quarterback. I think he I feel like he deserves to be in the conversation. But the point was is that if you remove Brock Purdy from the situation, the weapons around him will still allow for San Francisco to succeed at a similar level to their to where they're succeeding now. Whereas if you remove Lamar Jackson from the Baltimore Ravens, that team is dramatically different because because Lamar Jackson himself is a difference maker. Lamar Jackson himself creates plays where Nick Hunley or whoever the backup would or would be that came in probably couldn't do. And that is the difference. That is what valuable means in MVP. You know, professional sports often sees it as, oh, the best player. And while that, from a bird's eye view, would be what the award is, the award is called the most valuable player. So who, when removed from the team situation, alters the situation the most? And Jordan Travis's absence from Florida State clearly made a difference. If you watch their final few games without Jordan Travis, they barely managed to hang on. They did not look like the Florida State Seminoles that we had seen the rest of the year, and they and they won an ugly ACC championship against Louisville. So, and as the college football playoff committee stated, they watched those games the same as all of us did, and they saw how bad Florida State looked in the games without Jordan Travis. And they admitted that one of the things that they're trying to course correct in selecting the four teams that are in selecting the four teams that are to be shown in the playoff is that up up to this point in the college football playoff the average sem- semifinal score is 45 to 21. And that is something that the college football playoff is aware of and is trying to fix. And so if you're looking for the fourth team and that potential fourth team is struggling on offense, is not the same high-powered group that they were earlier in the year, it's going to be any matchup, whether it was going to be against Texas, Washington, Michigan, was probably going to be very, very lopsided. Uh, we will see how Florida State looks in their bowl game. But if the average score to this point in the college football playoff is something that the committee was concerned about, then in order to avoid that, they made the right decision because in all likelihood it would have been the same type of game against Michigan, Washington, or Texas. And the other thing is, and I said this when the college football playoff was was enacted 
several years ago from from the old BCS model of we're using computers to pick the top two to be in the national championship that everybody was mad at the BCS because the argument was between who's second and who's third who gets left out when the college football playoff was introduced I said this doesn't fix anything it just it just pushes the problem down from who's two and who's three to who's four and who's five only now you're introducing a room a group of people who don't play the game on the field who don't coach the game who don't who aren't around the players all the time if you're gonna this is this is unrelated but if i think if you're gonna do a committee for something like this that committee should be full of head coaches and assistant coaches of teams who aren't in, being considered because obviously you're going to have coaches vote for themselves and stuff like that but it should be coaches it should be it should be athletic directors it should be people who are there every week maybe not athletic directors but it should be coaches people who are there every week now this this expanded playoff where it goes to 12 is a little bit better but again it instead of keeping the problem between who's 4 and who's 5 it pushes the problem to who's 12 and who's 13 it's a little bit of a different situation. I admit that I'm warming up to the thought of it because it does allow more people to get in. It does allow, you know, if if in the situation where where Ohio State was was thrown down there and 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 Florida State, you know, thought they should get in but they didn't, they would have a chance to prove why they should. You know, you 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 could argue that twelve and thirteen would be the same problem, but it's a less high profile problem because if you're in the if if you're in the middle, you're in the middle. We can't get into a situation where we're like, oh, well, the thirteenth team is mad, so we're gonna just make the entire top twenty five fight it out. No, that's not that's not what we're doing here. Um, but I do think the committee got it right in in this particular case because Alabama beat the team that had been dominating college football for. For three years, they looked more like a different team than the team that lost to Texas in week two. And Florida State just was not the same group. The inherent flaw in the four-team playoff is that there there's four spots and there's five major conferences, and somebody was going to get left out. It was either going to be the champion from arguably the best not so arguably the best conference in college football or an undefeated ACC champion without their one difference maker without their diff without their court without their Heisman quarterback and we saw what Florida State looked like without Jordan Travis and it was not even close to what they looked like with him and that makes a difference the ACC in recent years has not been a great conference. Now you could say that this was not a great year for SEC football as well, which is true outside of Alabama, outside of Alabama, Missouri, and Georgia. It wasn't a great year for the SEC. But the other big consistent member of the ACC that usually makes noise is Clemson, and they had a really bad year. So it didn't help the look of the conference with 
their other big big school having a bad year and their best representative losing their Heisman level quarterback. I'm not I feel for Florida State. That's why that's why I said, oh, I, I try to see both sides of it. I understand and and agree with why they put Alabama in at four, but I understand the outrage of of, of a 13 and 0 ACC champion being left out. Um because the when you hit adversity, every team hits adversity. You got to win the games. Florida State did, regardless of how they looked. They won the games. But in this case, because of the difference maker that Jordan Travis was, and because the committee made it clear that they were that they're concerned about the the disparity of the of the semifinal games. I mean, look at the look at the national championship. The final last year was ended up being sixty five to seven. And so the college football committee is looking at those numbers and saying, we got to avoid that. And they thought the best way to avoid it was to put a deserving one loss SEC champion in the final. I think they got it right. Uh, Now it goes to the field as we wait for New Year's Day to see Alabama and Michigan square off as well as Washington and Texas. I'm, I'm, I think this is going to end up being a, Texas and Michigan national championship but it's funny for me because I I do try to stay biased on this podcast but I will tell you guys now cuz it's funny that I grew up a huge Alabama fan you can see there's an Alabama national championship ball right here and Bryce Young right here because my family's from there and it's a lifelong thing in my family. So I was a pr- I was a proud Alabama Crimson Tide fan, and there 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 were some rough years, and Saban came in and, and brought him back. But also, when I started getting into football, probably about ten or eleven, re- when I started really getting into football, I turned on the TV and I saw Michigan helmets, and I was like, oh, those are cool. Who is that? And and so the funny thing is, is that the other team that I've always rooted for, and it's really been a rough, rough sledding before Harbaugh, is Michigan. And so now for the first time in my fandom, really, and, and it's kind of what I was worried about. I was like, are, are, are they going to have to face off in a semifinal? And for the first time that I can remember, I think they may have played in, in, in a bowl game a few years ago, but it was it wasn't. You know, like, I don't think it was a New Year's Six situation. Uh, This is really the first time where I've had to watch the two teams that I grew up rooting for square off in a high-stakes situation. And I will will let it uh, stay secret who I'm pulling for, because I I don't 100% know. I do have an idea, but... I'm going to let it stay secret for now and I'm just going to enjoy the game. I'm I'm going to be happy regardless. I do think Texas is going to overwhelm Washington. I think Washington's going to put up a fight, but I do think Texas is going to come out on top there. So, my prediction is that Texas will get in and I think it'll be a toss up between Michigan and Alabama but my gut at this point it could change by New Year's Day my gut at this point tells me that Michigan will come out with something to prove because of um everything that's been said about them in the last few weeks and so I'm 
predicting a Michigan and Texas final. And I'll leave it at that, and I'll make a prediction on the final when we get there. Um, but that's my thoughts on, on, on the CFP. It's a messed up situation. I feel for Florida State and the ACC, but I feel like in this particular case, the committee made the right choice. And I look forward to a 12-team playoff because I'm warming up to that idea. And this situation um, highlighted the need for more teams, probably. So now I want to move on to the pros. We already touched on the NFL a little bit in that last segment because we were talking about MVP and Heisman and that kind of thing. But the NFL playoffs are, are coming really quick. A lot of teams have already clinched their spots. A lot of other teams are... It's coming down to these last two weeks, and this is like third year in a row that like anybody could get in and out in the final couple of weeks, and it's really exciting. Um, I just like to point out some of the predictions that I made. I I didn't uh, predict that the that the NFC South would be this bad. Uh, it looks like Tampa might be the best team in that division. New Orleans has not lived up to what we thought they would be with Derek Carr. And it looks like somebody's going to make the playoffs in that division under 500, which is something. The AFC has been the stronger conference as a whole this season. I do think the team to beat in the NFL is the San Francisco 49ers. They just, when, when everybody's out there, they look unstoppable. Um, they did get beat pretty good by Baltimore last week and that is why I think that's my that that's my Super Bowl prediction. Uh Baltimore Baltimore has looked better than they have in in Lamar's career. I think John Harbaugh is a wildly underrated coach in this league. We always talk about how good Mike Tomlin is as a coach and that he can overcome a lot of things. And because John Harbaugh has Lamar Jackson, I feel like we don't talk about how good of a coach he is. And because his brother Jim makes a lot of noise elsewhere, I feel like John is often forgot about. John is doing an incredible job. They have a new offensive coordinator. Lamar Jackson, to me, is the MVP in this league, and he proved it against San Francisco. I think that is my Super Bowl prediction. And... I think it'll be a rematch of 2011 when Baltimore won with Joe Flacco. More on him in a second. Uh, but that's my prediction. But this time, if if it ends up being San Francisco and Baltimore, I, I can't bet against Brock Purdy, Debo Samuel, and Christian McCaffrey. I would have to say this one would go to San Francisco. I think they're, I think they're far and away the best team in the NFL. I did predict... Jacksonville to win the AFC South and Indy to make the wild card. Right now, those two teams are tied with Houston in a three-way tie with two weeks to go for the division. Both Jacksonville and Indy lost some very lost a couple of very winnable games to NFC South rivals last week. Jacksonville lost to Tampa because of a because Trevor Lawrence has been banged up, and Indy just never looked quite right against Atlanta. So we will see between them, those two teams, and Houston, who is getting C.J. Stroud back this week, who's going to come out on top in a suddenly extremely winnable division. Indy and 
Houston play each other in Week 18, so we'll see what what consequences that game has. But I, I do want to draw everybody's attention back to the fact that in my preseason predictions, I did have Indy in the playoffs, which at the time some people thought was nuts. Uh, but then we saw how good Anthony Richardson was to start the year, how good that team looked. He got hurt. Gardner Minshew came in and played some of the best backup quarterback we've, we've seen. He can be a little bit Jekyll and Hyde. And it drives me crazy on a weekly basis, but it is what it is. And if it weren't for Kevin Stefanski in Cleveland, I think Shane Steichen would be the coach of the year. Which brings me to my next point. The Cleveland Browns are doing something just spectacular. And not only are they 11-5 and and have already clinched the playoffs, and, and Baltimore hasn't clinched the division yet, so we'll see what happens there. With two weeks left, Cleveland is, is two games behind Baltimore, uh, but they are in the playoffs. And what Cleveland is doing right now is absolutely absurd because you look at you you looked at that roster coming into the season and you're like, oh yeah, Nick Chubb, Deshaun Watson with the full offseason back in the NFL, uh, Amari Cooper, Miles Garrett, like obviously this team is 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 a playoff contender but then they lost Nick Chubb and then they lost Deshaun Watson and then they lost their backup quarterback so the fact that the Browns are where they are right now it makes it an obvious choice that Kevin Kevin Stefanski is is coach of the year i mean it's absolutely wild the Browns are 11 and 5 they they have the fewest yards allowed at 266 a game. If you've watched Cleveland play this year, that defense has bothered a lot of teams. You know, I've heard a lot about if if the Bills make it in because of injury, they're they're still in in the wild card hunt. They said if the Bills make it in, they're the team nobody wants to play. Nobody wants to play Baltimore. Nobody wants to play. You know, some have called the playoffs the NFC, the San Francisco Invitational. Nobody obviously nobody wants to play those teams, but. I've always heard if Buffalo gets in, they're the AFC team nobody wants to play. You know, when when Buffalo played Dallas a couple week, weeks ago, all I heard was the entire AFC is rooting for Dallas. And Buffalo absolutely ran right through them. And I say ran through them because James Cook had 221 total yards. Uh, and I do think Buffalo is dangerous should they get in the playoffs. But now Cleveland is in the playoffs. And they've done it by with, with a stifling defense that, oh, by the way, 26% of Cleveland's payroll is on IR. Oh, by the way, they're on their fourth string quarterback, who is a 38, almost 39-year-old Super Bowl champion that who earlier this year was sitting on the couch and hanging out with his kids. Like, and they lost arguably the best running back in the NFL early in the year and their backup running backs have been absolutely killing it. Like this team should not be 11 and five. They shouldn't because all the injuries they've had, they're, they're, they're missing two starting offensive linemen. They're missing Grant Delpit, who's one of their best defenders outside of Miles Garrett. They're they're Like I said, missing 26% of their roster is on IR. 26%. And they're 11 and five and leading the NFL in yards allowed. 
Buffalo is dangerous if they get in. But they're not in yet. Cleveland is. And I would be very afraid of Cleveland if I had to play them in the AFC playoff, in the AFC wildcard. Cleveland is not to be messed with. Joe Flacco, I thought I saw, was averaging 300-something yards a game and has Cleveland's offense, like, fifth in the league since, like, week 13. And that's an offense that they were just, you know, doing their due diligence while the defense was tearing up everybody. The defense was the suffocating part. Now the offense is coming to life with Joe Flacco. Despite the fact that they didn't have Amari Cooper against the Jets, both the offense and the defense looked like a juggernaut. And I know the Jets are bad. The Jets, are they're, they're bad. But Cleveland looked like a juggernaut on Thursday night football. And so, and so Cleveland is in the playoffs despite everything going against them. They're on their fourth quarterback, who's 38 years old and w- was on the couch three weeks ago. They're missing so much of their team, including two offensive linemen. Miles Garrett is is leading that defense and could be, maybe should be, defensive player of the year besides maybe T.J. Watt. This team is scary. Well, we wait and see if Buffalo, the, the team nobody wants to play, gets into the playoffs. Don't forget about the Cleveland Browns because coach of the likely coach of the year, Kevin, St- Kevin Stefanski, is doing a great job this year, and it's it's. It's a funny parallel between the two teams that played on Thursday night, the Cleveland Browns and the New York Jets, because the New York Jets had a lot of the same issues that the Cleveland Browns had. They lost a couple of their impact players really early on. They, They went through all these ups and downs, all these different things, but Cleveland was like, next man up, we're going to hold this thing together and we're going to do this. And they they arguably got better as the season went on as all these injuries were piling up. Whereas the Jets lost Rodgers four plays into the season and were basically like, oh, we're done. It's over. Two, two teams in very similar situations went in wildly opposite directions. So that's what I want to say about the NFL. And now we're going to move real quickly to... The story of the MLB offseason, Shohei Otani signing a 10-year, $700 million contract. And that is no no other player in MLB history had even made had even signed a $500 million contract. We knew that Shohei Otani was going to get record-breaking money. That is not a secret. I had said it on an earlier podcast that maybe he would get slightly less than that because he won't be able to pitch until 2025. But as we saw, that is not the case. He got that 700 that everybody been talking about. The story to me, and I know this is not illegal, but the more I think about it, the more uncomfortable I am with the fact that this can happen to this extent. I know this happens all the time, but to this extent, it bothers me. Of the $700 million, that the Los Angeles Dodgers are committing to the best player we've ever seen, probably. During his entire contract, they're only paying him $20 million. He's taken $2 million a year off a $700 million contract during the contract, and then the rest is deferred until 2034 when that contract is over and will be paid out in massive installments. 
until 2043. Contract deferment is not a new concept. It's something that has happened a lot in baseball over the years. But to the extent that this is, this, not the deferment, but the amount that's being deferred feels wrong. 680 of the 700 isn't going to be paid for 10 years. They're paying him $2 million, which they're paying him $2 million a year for 10 years, which isn't that much more than the $720,000 veteran minimum in Major League Baseball in 2023. Contract restructurings happen all the time to make room for getting more players and building a championship team. That happens. That's why I'm not saying that money deferment in and of itself should be illegal. But deferring 80-90% of a contract when it's the best player in the world, when all 30 teams in Major League Baseball wanted this player, and then having him barely factor on your, on your payroll for a year. $2 million. A $2 million hit. Now they're still going to have to pay out the rest of that. And it's going to hurt him when Shohei Otani is no longer on the team because he's 30 years old. So the end of his contract will likely be the end of his career. But it seems like if you're going to be, and I, I know several teams were mulling the same deal. I think I think the Giants have come out and said that they were they offered Shohei the exact same deal the Dodgers did with the deferments and everything. But, and this is not just for the Dodgers, this is for Major League Baseball. If you are going to go out and sign the biggest name in baseball, sign a generational talent, sign a player like we've never seen before, you should take, you should take a hit. I know that there's no cap in baseball, but there is a luxury tax. You should take more of a hit than two million during the during the course of his contract to to bring him in. And on top of that, they then used Shohei Otani to bring in this year's most highly sought after free agent after Shohei, which was Yoshinobu Yamamoto who they signed for 12 years, $325 million. So this is north of $1 billion they're committing to two players for a decade. And I, I saw recently there's, they're still not over the luxury tax because of this deferment with Shohei Otani. It doesn't feel right that they should be allowed to only pay him $2 million a year during the course of his contract. Because it feels like when you have somebody of that caliber, the price of getting him should be it's going to be harder to build around him because you have to pay him this massive contract. And yet Shohei Otani is playing not that far north of veteran minimum. $2 million. That's nothing. That's, no, that's nothing. So, you know, and it's not sour grapes. It's just if you're going to go after the big, the, the big dog, you should have to take a bigger bite out of the pie than that. I, you, you can do deferment, but I feel like there needs to be a, a a minimum number that you can defer. Like, you can defer 
50% of it. You can defer 60% of it, but you still have you have to pay it out. The Dodgers are deferring 97% of this contract till after it's over. And that feels horribly wrong. Um there there needs to be a minimum number and I think that minimum number needs to be somewhere around 50 or 60. You should have to, you should have to bite more of a bullet when you sign a contract that big as a team. But and on top of that, it's 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 not it's not just about oh, it feels it feels like cheating even though it's not. We know deferment happens all the time to sign a guy for 700 million and only pay him 20 over the course but it's also boring like every, everybody knew that Shohei was going to go to the Dodgers everybody like we were hoping upon hope that he'd go back to the Angels or the Giants or anywhere else because the Dodgers do this they they buy everybody up and everybody wants to talk about the Yankees doing it everybody wants to talk about oh the Yankees can have have bought everybody for years except the Dodgers have have taken kind of the role of the evil empire in that way from the Yankees and just bought everybody up. And then to go to go out and get the other big Japanese name for a, a massive contract too. It's just like that's that's so boring. That's really boring. And that's all I have to say about that. It's just come on, like can we not go to the like it takes more than one one or two players to win a championship in baseball. If if that weren't the case, the Angels would have won, you know, the last three with Otani and Trout on the same team. But to stack guys who could be the best player on any other team all on the same team, that's just boring. Not Not unfair. If you can do it, do it. But it's boring. Like everybody said, you know, you talk about the glory days of I've I've heard quote unquote glory days of the NBA being when the the Warriors and the Cavs were facing off the playoffs over and over and over. I think three straight years was that really the glory day? That's just there's no parity. Parity is what keeps sports going, and baseball's always had the best parity of the major sports because you can't win with one or two key players. But this is just this. It's just like okay, all the best players are gonna to go to the same team. Sweet. Now, it's 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 even sweeter when that team doesn't win the championship, like the Dodgers the last couple of years. They they did win in twenty twenty, and that was before they really went on the buying spree. Um, but so 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 it's a little bit sweeter when when that team loses. But the, it's it's five and a half months of stress for like one great oh yes they've been eliminated moment and I and. We should never root for a player the caliber of Shohei Otani to be eliminated and from anything and not continue to play. And that's why it's kind of boring to me. I would have loved to see, you know, Shohei Otani go up against the Dodgers and that kind of thing. Which brings me to another point. I saw a report that you Darvish is reportedly devastated that the Dodgers not only got Shohei Otani. But also Yoshi Yamamoto, because apparently he had told the Padres front office that it was his dream to get all those guys 
to San to uh, San Diego to to specifically to beat the Dodgers and then they can get all of Japan's best players over on the same team. It, we had heard early in the process we'd heard San Diego as as a possible uh, spot for Shohei and. Apparently, you Darvish also wanted Yamamoto. He didn't, and and the Dodgers really, or sorry, the Padres really weren't in play for either one at all. And apparently, you Darvish is devastated um, that it didn't come together. So I wouldn't be surprised to see you Darvish a leave the Padres because he's probably pretty upset with them for not making a legitimate play to the players that he wanted to see for very personal reasons but i w- wouldn't be surprised if he found his way back to the dodgers who who he pitched for um for a year in his career because he wants to play with those two guys and so i just it it bums me out as a baseball fan to see all this talent going to one team i know it's not illegal i know you know contract deferments happen all the time but the a contract deferment to this level feels feels wrong you should have to take a bigger hit when you sign the greatest player the game has ever seen and that brings me to i want to talk about some other famous contract deferments that are still affecting teams right now and that's what's going to happen what's going to happen to the dodgers in in 2034 when that contract is over and they have to start paying this absorbent amount of money to Shohei Otani. Now let's let's take a look at that. If if he deferred six eighty, and he's going to get it paid out over ten years after his contract, that's sixty eight million a year when he's no longer on the roster. Now I know there's there's some numbers, and maybe maybe the Dodgers won't end up paying quite that amount of money, but that's a sixty. That's in the neighborhood of sixty to seventy million dollars for a player that is not on your roster for ten years. It's it's an extreme version of Bobby, of Bobby Bonilla, which brings you to my point. Baseball fans, July first every year we joke it's Bobby Bonilla Day. So let's revisit that. Bobby Bobby Bonilla was a major league baseball player, three time All Star, I believe. Um, who retired from baseball in 2001. Um, but in 1999, he returned to the New York Mets, who he, had, who he had played for earlier in his career. And by the end of the season, they wanted to release him. Upon wanting to release him, Bonilla and the Mets reached a settlement agreement that where the Mets would pay Bobby Bonilla $1.19 million plus interest from 2011 to 2035, a 25-year contract deferment settlement that doesn't end for another 11 years. He got paid again this year. He will continue to get paid. Now, $1.19 million plus a little bit of interest is not going to make that big a dent, but we've seen the Mets try to spend absorbently not be able to do it that doesn't have really anything to do with Bobby Bonilla but it's a guy who at 60 years old hasn't played a game in Major League Baseball since 2001 and he's earning almost two million dollars which as I said is more than the veteran minimum 
and he's 60 years old. That's not the only one. It is the most popular one, the one we talk about all the time. Uh, but in 2000, King Griffey Jr. signed a nine-year, $112.5 million contract with the Cincinnati Reds. I know with numbers like Shohei Otani and Mike Trout got one point or 112.5 seems small, but this was in 2000. That that was that was the the equivalent at the time. And he he and King Griffey Jr. asked for those payments to be deferred from 2009 to 2024 so the last year that that King Griffey Jr. will get paid by the Reds is this year and he earns 3.5 million a year during that deferment period in 2023 last so so last season King Griffey Jr. who hasn't played in Major League Baseball since 2010 was the fourth highest paid player on the Reds roster fourth and he he was behind only Joey Votto, Mike Mustakis and Will Myers as the fourth highest paid player on the Reds roster. Now, the Reds still made a run at the playoffs this year. They didn't quite make it, but they made a good run and they have a bright future and all this sort of stuff. But the Reds haven't made the playoffs a lot in recent years. Since King Griffey Jr.'s contract ended in 2009 and those payments kicked in in 2010, the Reds have only made the playoffs four times in 13 years and have never made it past the divisional series. So it might not be the biggest hit to have King Griffey Jr. on, on your roster technically, on your payroll, but for him to be the fourth highest when he hasn't played a game for your team in 15 years. And let's look at the other three on last year's, on the, the other three players who were the highest paid players for your team last year. Joey Votto, who is 40 years old. And while he had a decent year for, for him, they released him after the year. He's a free agent. He, and hardly played like the person who's paid the most on, on a major league roster because he's 40 years old. He had a decent year, but nothing nothing like David Ortiz's last year in the majors when he went on an absolute tear and made a case for MVP. Joey Votto was was serviceable and 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 he's your number one guy. Number two, Mike Mustakis didn't play for the Reds at all in 2023. He was on the Angels for the entire year. Uh he 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 last played for the Cincinnati Reds in 2022 didn't play at all. Second highest paid player on the on the team at 22 million. Will Myers number three. He signed a he he signed a deal with the Reds prior to 2023. Played 37 games, hit under 200, went to the went to the IL with kidney stones, and upon his return was designated for assignment and released in June. So he's only on the roster for half a year, played 37 games, played poorly. That's your third highest player on the payroll, fourth, King Griffey Jr., who, again, hasn't played for your team in 15 years. So not including Myers, who did play for the Reds last year, only 37 games, so I could include him in this if I wanted to, the Reds paid 
25.5 million to players who weren't on their roster last season at all. If, and if you want to throw Will Myers in there, they paid 31.5 million to three players who gave them a grand total of 37 games and a 189 average. So this is the damage that a deferred contract can do to a team after it's over. And none of these contracts that I mentioned are even close to the amount of time or, or the amount of money that the Dodgers are going to have to pay to Shohei Otani when he's 40 in his 40s and 50s. So even though the Dodgers have been reckless spenders in the past and will probably continue to be reckless spenders in the past, it's hard to see how 10 years from now the Dodgers won't be bleeding in some form financially from having to pay Shohei Otani after his contract is over. I really think there needs to be a minimum amount of a contract percentage-wise that you can defer um, until after it's over. In cases like this, you should have to take a bigger hit for signing the best player in the world. Like, you, you should. And that's what's a little unfair to the game of baseball. Moving on, because we're running a little bit long here, uh, I, wanna, I, I want to talk about who, someone I've talked about a lot on this podcast, and I don't like talking about him because it always means that he's doing something he shouldn't be doing. Draymond Green, uh, suspended indefinitely by the NBA for yet another instance where he couldn't control his temper. He couldn't control himself on the field and I or on the court, sorry. And I said this when he choked out Rudy Gobert. I said, he has shown no remorse for any of the things he's done. He said, I'm Draymond, you're not going to change me. So it was of no surprise to me that he basically punched out Yusuf Nurkic in a game against in a game against the Phoenix Suns when he said, oh, I flail my arms on the court. I didn't know he was right there. Uh, you had your back to him. You were backing him down. There's no way you couldn't feel him, even if you weren't touching him, but you couldn't feel him behind you. So you knew where your arm was going when you flailed. You knew. There's no way you didn't. And for the fact that it to happen in front of his former teammate, Kevin Durant, who he didn't, he famously didn't get along super great with, for Kevin Durant to immediately say he needs help, and for others to echo the man needs help, nobody was defending Draymond in this situation as they shouldn't have. But this is essentially what Draymond gets for never being sorry and never being willing to change. I don't even want to say the player he is because what he does out there sometimes is not basketball, not being willing to change the person that he is. And so this indefinite suspension is, and, and the, the, the two people heavily, most heavily involved in his suspension this time, whereas Joe Dumars, who's been a good friend of Draymond's since Draymond grew up in Michigan for most of Draymond's life, and Andre Iguodala, who won a champion, who won championships with Draymond Green, for those two guys to say you need to go away until we say you can come back means that not only that 
he, there was no one in Draymond's corner as far as he should stay. And we're all in Draymond's corner as far as hoping that he gets it that he gets it under control. I saw, but but I saw a headline recently that says Draymond beginning the process of returning to the NBA. And there's a reason that they didn't put a number on the suspension because there there was a lot of conversation about how he got five games for the Rudy Gobert thing that it should have been more or did he get five or ten I don't know that it that he should have gotten more for the Rudy Gobert thing. There's been a lot of conversation about John Moran's twenty five for for the gun stuff. Uh, so the NBA did not want to put a number on it to invite that kind of scrutiny about, oh, he should get more. Oh, that's too much. They said indefinitely. So they will decide when he's ready to come back. I personally thought that indefinitely should extend at least beyond the rest of the season. Um, but if he's starting the the process of coming back, we don't know um, when that will be. Hopefully, and I, and I don't say this from a basketball standpoint. I think Draymond, at the very least, needs to sit out the rest of the year. Because I don't think 10, 15, 20 games is enough to be like, do you understand what, you, what you're doing? This is the fourth time in the last 18 months that you've physically harmed another player substantially punching Jordan Poole in the face in practice. He didn't get suspended for that because the because the Warriors handled that internally. Maybe that was the wrong call. But Jordan Poole, DeMontis Sabonis in the playoffs, Rudy Gobert, and now Yusuf Nurkic. There's a difference between on-court antics and physically harming others. And I think that's that's when the NBA took a step back and said, Oh, something something is wrong here more than he's just fiery and he just this is the way he plays the game. That's that's not like I said, what he's doing out there in these cases, it's not basketball. Stomping on the sternum of another player, punching out a teammate, headlock putting a guy in a headlock and dragging him backwards, punching a guy in the face on the court. That is not basketball. So I sincerely hope, I know I give Draymond a lot of crap. But I sincerely hope that he can take a step back and through all this process, through the therapy he is undoubtedly going through, I think I think it was mandated by the by the NFL that he or sorry, by the NBA that he do some kind of counseling, which I think is exactly the right call. But I I just I think that for for Draymond for Draymond, for the betterment of him, for the betterment of the NBA, he shouldn't be thinking about returning to the NBA this year. And that that's that's my opinion. And I know a lot of you probably aren't going to agree with that opinion. Then so maybe I'm too harsh on him, whatever. But we haven't seen him change. And not only have we not seen him change, but it keeps, every incident keeps escalating. So I think, suspending him indefinitely was the right call I, I think banning him would have been a little harsh but I don't think he, we, the NBA should be talking about reinstating him anytime this year at the very least take time completely away from basketball and just figure it out we're all rooting for him because we don't want to see any other players get harmed on the court. 
the last thing I want to touch on, as I said, this is going a little long, but it is our first one in a while, so I had a lot of things I, I wanted to get to. Debo Samuel stands up for his his quarterback, Brock Purdy, after comments that Cam Newton had made about, oh, Brock Purdy and Dak Prescott aren't difference makers, they're, play, they're game managers, as if a game manager was a bad thing, since they, you know, they can't make the play, the big plays. And I, and I mentioned, you know, earlier, I said, if, if you remove Brock Purdy and put in Sam Darnold or somebody like that, I, I said the, the pieces around Brock Purdy are probably are, are really, 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 really good. But that doesn't mean that anyone can do it. Trey Lance couldn't do it. Sam Darnold did look shaky uh, when he when, when he came in for Brock Purdy on on in that game against Baltimore. I think Brock Purdy is really good. You know, I I I look at Brock Purdy and I can't and and it might not be a fair comparison. It, it's it, but I'm saying from the standpoint of where he was in the draft to everybody calling him a game manager to, oh, it's just the system he's in. It's, uh, there's a lot of, I see a lot of comparison to Tom Brady. I'm not, I'm not saying that he's going to be Tom Brady. I'm not saying he's going to win seven Super Bowls and be the greatest quarterback in the NFL. But I see a lot of that. I see a lot of Tom Brady, a lot of early Tom Brady in Brock Purdy that he might not make the biggest play ever. You know, Tom Brady didn't have the crazy athleticism of of his counterparts like Michael Vick and Donovan McNabb. Brock Purdy certainly doesn't have the athleticism of Patrick Mahomes or Lamar Jackson. Brock Purdy, as a quarterback, Brock Purdy's job is to get the ball to his difference makers. Debo Samuel, Brandon Ayuk, Christian McCaffrey, George Kittle. And that's what Tom Brady did. You know, Tom Brady wasn't a runner in the pocket. Tom Brady, you know, didn't make a lot of things happen with his legs. He, Tom Brady didn't make a lot of plays himself. You know, he, he threw the ball to his receivers, except he knew where to throw it. He, he knew where to throw the ball. He knew how to get it to him. He knew, he just knew. He, he had an intangible knowledge of what he needed to do. And that's what I see in Brock Purdy. So for us to so for Cam Newton to say, oh, game managers, like they're not difference makers, like that's a bad thing. Like, sure, Cam Newton was an MVP. He made it to Super Bowl 50. But Cam Newton's not in the NFL. And all the guys he seemingly insulted with the game manager label, Dak Prescott, Brock Purdy, they're playing at MVP levels. And so Debo Samuel stands up and says, hey, and Debo Samuel is a funny guy. He has a dry sense of humor. So maybe some of this was a joke. But he did say that Cam Newton reportedly, after making these comments, tried to get Debo Samuel on his podcast. And Debo Samuel's like, I'm not coming on your podcast. Don't text me about your podcast when you're out here talking about my guy. And then Debo shared text messages he had with Cam Newton when Cam asked him about the text messages or asked him about coming on the podcast where he was like, yo, 
Debo, it's 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 Cam. Good game. Come on the podcast." And Debo kept being like, "Who's this? Who's this?" Um, and and that part was a joke. Debo said as much, but I do think Debo kind of stood his ground with Cam. And one of the reasons he he was pulling that joke, I was like, "You're you're gonna come and try to insult my quarterback." And talk about game managers versus superstar players, labeling yourself as a superstar difference make player, but you're not in the league, bro. Like you had a great start in Carolina, you got to Super Bowl, but then stuff went downhill in Carolina, and then you went to went to the New England, and it it went fine there, but you're hardly a difference maker. Like your focus hasn't been on football for a long time even when you were still in the league and you're out here, you're out here talking like somebody, the difference between former players that are on ESPN, on Fox, on these networks talking about the game is that they talk about the game in a way, in a respectful way, knowing these are the guys whose hands it's in now because I can no longer do it. That, that is the, that is the, lens through which former players who get paid to talk about it on tv look at it like oh look at what these guys are doing i can no longer do this so i'm going to give honest and constructive and 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 football related takes on these players because i can no longer do it this is how i can help fans understand the way that cam newton approached it is these guys are nothing special but i am Cam almost said, "You you should have you should sign me instead of these guys. I can do more than these guys." Almost like he's trying to get back in the league and take their jobs. Cam Newton has said in the past. He said, "I should be." He's made comments about he should he thinks he should be playing, and he's not. And so it comes from a it comes from a bitter place. It feel it feels like that that statement came from a bitter place of somebody who's not on an NFL roster right now. And that's the difference. And I think that's where a lot of players are standing up for the quarterbacks that were mentioned by Cam Newton. He's like, you're not here. He is here. And he's playing at a high level. Tom Brady was the game manager. Back in, back in, uh, I think the Madden 08 days or something like that, game manager or field manager was one of the, like, the, the X Factor abilities in Madden now that, like field game manager field general like that was one of the things that you could strive to be and they used tom brady as the like look look who's a field general it's never been a bad thing but in recent years the media has tried to turn turn game manager into a bad thing as a quarterback your job is to manage the game because you touch the ball more than any other player on the field your job is to be a game manager because you have to distribute the ball. Why is it a bad thing? Why is it, oh, he's not a superstar because he's a game manager? You can be a superstar and a game manager. You can be a game manager and not a superstar. A game manager is just, it's not a title you give to somebody that's not meeting your expectations. It is the actual job description of being a quarterback at any level. So Cam Newton's comments to me felt like the bitter ramblings of a former MVP who can't find a job in the NFL.
and 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 Debo Samuel, whether he was partially joking or 100% serious, took a stand for his guy and the other guys who Cam was coming after. That's all I have for you this week on Empire Sports Talk. As I said, uh, here in a couple weeks, we'll have a new addition to the set. Probably right about here. I'm very excited about it, but I want to keep it under wraps until we get there. Go to our social media, go to YouTube, go to Twitter or X or whatever, and let us know what you think the new edition is going to be. Uh, I doubt you'll guess it, but let me know what you think it's going to be. Follow us on social media. We Now that we have the computer back, we had a lot of content ready to go um, prior to the holidays, but we it didn't work out to get it posted, so it's all coming at you right now. Um, in, in, in the coming days and weeks, we're going to have a lot of content that we had previously recorded for you um, that, that, that is going to come out. So, so follow us on social media. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. I am Roman Gennaro for Empire Sports Talk. Today's a good day to go 1-0, and Happy New Year. See you next time.